Well, Heavenly Father, I am uh, I'm truly am thankful for Calvary South. Lord, I know that uh, we as a group of elders um, prayed and sought you, uh, and we truly believed at the time that that was your will, uh, that we would reach out on the south side of Cheyenne. We didn't see uh, a whole lot of new churches wanting to go that direction. Everybody wants to be over here, and so we felt like that was important. We also recognized that uh, we were at a size uh, where we really couldn't grow much as a church uh, without adding services or um, uh, finding extra space or something like that, but uh, Lord, we still wanted to be a growing church somehow, and so we decided we wanted to grow on the south side. Uh, Father, I, f- I feel like uh, your callings are always true, and so we want to be faithful as we can uh, to, to figure out how we can minister over there, uh, Lord, but for this church, uh, they're in a, a moment of crisis, and uh, those things can be Uh, the end of a church, or they can be the strong foundation that that church will stand on in the future. Lord, I would pray uh, for wisdom for those who are in leadership over there. Uh, I would pray that they would have uh, a good, clear word from you as to what the future of that church is supposed to be. I would pray for wisdom for us as well, as we are uh, actively supporting that church in a number of different ways. Uh, Lord, that uh, we have to decide how we go forward with that that you would give us wisdom over the next couple of weeks as we start to make some of those decisions. Uh, Lord, I would pray uh, for the people who attend that church. Uh, Lord, it's, it's hard. It's so hard to uh, invest in a church and then see things not go the way you want or invest in a pastor and uh, see him uh, step aside uh, for whatever reason, whether it's good or bad reasons, it's still a, a loss. It feels like a loss. Lord, I pray that you'd be comforting those who attend church there. I pray that you would be... Uh, helping us know how to best invest in them and care for them through this. Uh, Lord, I would pray for Josh and his family. Uh, Lord, I would pray that they would be seeking your will in everything that you do, that they would be unified going forward. Uh, I know that there will probably be, uh, just for them personally, a a time of of just being down, a sadness, maybe a depression that would come in because they're stepping away from something that uh, uh, was hard, but they truly enjoyed it. And and, uh, I pray, Lord, that you wouldn't allow them to be... uh, overwhelmed by their circumstances, but instead that they would uh, find in this a time of refuge, a time of peace and seeking after you. I know they intend to still be a part of that body in some way that, uh, Lord, you'd help them to do that and to see how that would work out well for them and for the church over there. Uh, Father, we know that we can trust you, that you care about what happens in each and every church. Uh, I know you care about what happens in this church as well. And even this morning as we get into the word and we get to hear uh, about these, these, these last three of the seven churches that, uh, Lord, I know you have things for us as a church to see in this. Uh, my prayer, Father, would be that we would uh, have open eyes and open ears, uh, responsive hearts to your spirit today, that you would be speaking to our church specifically on how we uh, can continue in good deeds and how we can avoid uh, uh, the criticism that comes from heaven and how we can overcome uh, in the midst of this world. Uh, Father, I pray for each person here that... Uh, It's too easy sometimes to say this sermon is for the church at large, but not to see how it affects them. I know that each person here who is a believer in your son, Jesus Christ, is indwelled by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be speaking to their hearts, uh, guiding and directing them, and that they would be responsive to that. And I pray, Lord, as well, uh, that there would be, uh, amongst those who maybe don't believe, uh, that they would uh, find today uh, a, a newfound faith and trust and hope in you. Lord, we pray that you'd open your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Always a lot to pray about, isn't there? 
Um, so we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 3. So if you'd open your Bibles there, that would be great. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. It looks like Bill will bring you one uh, so you can follow along with us. Uh, but uh, way over there, Bill, I'm going to put a timer on and see how many, how many laps we can get you to do. So once he gets that over there, if somebody else could raise a hand over here and just get him kind of ping-ponging back for the rest of the service, that would be fun. But, uh, well, maybe not for Bill, but for all of us, it would be a good time. Um, well, now I'm distracted. Look at me. <laughs> so Revelation is what we want to talk about. We're in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, the book of Revelation is exciting for a lot of people. It's exciting for me because it reminds us that Jesus Christ is coming back for his church, that he ultimately has a plan and a purpose for us eternally with him in heaven. And so uh, there is the other thing people like to figure out what all the signs and symbols and all that stuff. Uh, that's mildly exciting. More exciting than that is just the reminder that Jesus is coming back. When we've approached now in chapter 2 and then now again in chapter 3, uh, we're looking at seven letters that were written to seven specific churches, but also those letters have value for us today as a church. So we want to look at it in that sense. Uh, what we're doing for the sake of time is rather than taking one church every week, which is what I did the last time I thought through the book, taught through the book of Revelation, uh, I'm trying to be faithful to the promise I made uh, that we're going to attempt to get through the whole New Testament in five years. To do that, we need to take a chapter a week, which means we have to take a number of these letters at the same time, three this week. Uh, but instead of looking at it just in that very simple way, letter, 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 we're going to look at all three of the letters in chapter three at the same time. But we're breaking those letters down by the format that was used uh, by John, really by Jesus as he wrote these letters. So that format, uh, we looked at this last week, uh, but it has kind of these seven things generally included in there. Uh, there's an address, and so it'll say something like, to the angel of the church in, and then it'll tell you the name of the church that he's writing to. And then there is the from, who it's from, but the from will then be a description of Jesus Christ, and so we'll see that. The one who, or he who has, and it'll describe something about Jesus. Some of it'll be obvious stuff that we already know about Jesus, but a lot of it is connected specifically to the image or the vision of Jesus that John saw in chapter 1. So you're going to see some of those things repeated in these descriptions of Jesus. But it's a letter to a church from Jesus. Uh, oftentimes, but not every time, he's going to praise them for their deeds. And it'll literally say, I know your deeds. And then it'll list them out. Uh, what we'll notice today that's different, two of these three churches will not be praised for their deeds, but they'll still be told that Jesus saw their deeds. He's just not praising for them, which means those are probably not the right deeds. Those are bad deeds, right? Uh, then he'll bring about, if it is a deal there, that there's something to criticize them for, some things that they're not doing well. Uh, he'll bring about some criticism. Again, not every church is going to have that. Uh, two churches overall didn't have that. This is the second one we'll see today, the message to Philadelphia. Uh, in that case, there won't be any specific criticism for them, uh, but it'll be something along the lines of, but I have this against you, which is just not something that you want to hear from Jesus. If you're pastoring a church and you get a letter from Jesus, and if he says, but I have this against you, you might want to pay attention because he's then going to not leave you there. He's going to give you some instructions. I have this against you, therefore, and then he's going to say, do this. And then the scary words, or else... And so there's some listed discipline there that he gives. And then lastly, in all of these, he finishes them with a promise, uh, something along the lines of, 
to him who overcomes or he who overcomes. So that's going to be the format we're going to be looking at. So we'll look at each one of these things as we go forward for each of these. I will also make sure I read each of the letters because I think that's important that we read through it as well. Uh, but we won't handle every detail of every letter because there's just uh, not enough time to get that detailed. So chapter 3, verse 1, this is the letter to the church of Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven stars of God and the seven spirit I'm sorry, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, who else uh, had to not laugh as there was a child crying and I'm reading, he who didn't soil his garments? (laughs) I almost had to completely stop the sermon at that point because my brain works in, in mysterious ways. (laughs) Yes, this is not the baby's fault. This is the pastor's fault. (laughs) His brain does these things. Well, we're going to be looking at these specific churches, first of all. This is, again, it started out to the angel of the church as we're going to look at three specific churches. There's Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You might recall from last time, uh, it seems like as John was writing these letters uh, for Jesus, he was at the island of Patmos, and he would just go to the nearest port city of Ephesus and then work his way around, uh, I guess that's clockwise, I don't know, counterclockwise, you tell me, Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, which he's kind of just making that circuit there, uh, which is a natural way to do that. Uh, When we look at these three churches, uh, I like to point out the ones we know stuff about. Uh, The only thing we know about the church of Sardis from Scripture is what you see here. The only thing we know about the church of Philadelphia from Scripture is what you see here. Interestingly enough, though, we know a little bit about the church of Laodicea, not just from here, but it also gets mentioned in the book of Colossians. And so in the book of Colossians chapter 2, and then again in chapter 4, you'll see that Laodicea gets mentioned. The apostle Paul is writing letters to churches, but what he had a habit of doing is when he sent a letter to a church, he wouldn't just say to the church there, but he would then instruct them to pass that around to the other churches in the region. So he's going to write a letter to the church of Colossia, or Colossia, book of Colossians in our Bible. He's going to write a letter to them, but he's going to ask them to pass that on to other churches. And he specifically mentions Laodicea. So this is one of the churches uh, that would have received the book or the epistle of the Colossians. In addition to that, though, he mentions in there that he had actually written a, a letter to the church of Laodicea that they were supposed to pass on to the Colossians. We don't have that letter anymore. It's been lost to history. 
Uh, but what we can see in that is just the care, the concern, or the burden that the Apostle Paul had for these churches. You know, Jesus has passed away, and then he was resurrected, and he was brought up into heaven. And now these churches have started with faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrected Savior, but they don't have this long tradition. They don't have, uh, they don't have the standards of income. They don't have all the things necessary. They're just trying to get going as a church, and there's this burden on the Apostle Paul. So he's writing these letters of encouragement to them to strengthen them. Well, we'll get to see that the church at Laodicea maybe didn't do so good as history went forward, as time went forward, that maybe they had struggled after that. And you're going to see that there's some pretty distinct criticism for them uh, as they go forward. So uh, the next thing we see in each of these letters, we're going to see a description of Jesus, right? And so here we have the description to the church of Sardis, he who has the seven spirits of God, And the seven stars says this, uh, that is clearly connected to Revelation chapter 1, first verse 4, the seven spirits before the throne, and then uh, verse 16 mentions the seven stars in the hand of Jesus, and then we're told, I think it's in verse 19 of chapter 1, that each of those seven stars represents one of these churches. Of course, the comforting aspect of that for me personally is just to recognize uh, that, that Jesus in heaven notices and cares about what's going on in the churches. Uh, He even describes it as stars in his hand. Uh, I like to consider that from our perspective as a church, just to remember that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in our church. He does care about it. He does desire uh, to help us and to bring us forward as a church. And I like to even think of it as there's literally in heaven somewhere in the hand of Jesus, a star that says, Calvary Chapel, Cheyenne. And I'm hoping it's burning brightly. I don't know but I'm hoping it's burning brightly. Uh, The next description that you're going to get from the church of Philadelphia, he is holy, he is true, and he has in his hands the key of David who opens and no one will shut. That's verse 7, by the way. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and who no one one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this. Uh, This is an interesting one because uh, you're not likely to know what the key of David is. However, we get to hear what the key of David is in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. It explains it to us, and it's actually a messianic prophecy. What this is telling us is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that messianic prophecy. Uh, It's an interesting image. Uh, If you were to think of of, um, uh, David's royal house, for instance, he would have somebody whose job would be doorkeeper. It's his job to let people in and out, and he has a key, literally, that he keeps on him. It's actually uh, tied to his shirt is the way they would keep that key, and he would use that key to open and shut the doors. And so if he locks the door, nobody's getting in, and if he unlocks the door, people can come in. He's the doorkeeper. Well, Jesus, of course, is the doorkeeper of heaven. You see that in one of the parables in the Gospel of John. You see that same image as the uh, Old Testament prophecy, and then again, you see it here. Uh, even to the sense in the book of Matthew, Jesus will mention something, I think in Matthew chapter 16, when uh, the apostle Peter makes his profession of faith in Jesus Christ, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, man, this was revealed to you by heaven, right? And then he says, I'm going to give to you the keys to heaven. And whatever you open will be open. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. It's the same idea. He's giving that 
yeah, that important access there. But Jesus is the one who controls this stuff. It also tells us at the beginning of Revelation where it describes him as having a key, we're also told that that key is also the key to death and Hades. And so there's some sort of connection there that he also has control uh, over the door to entrance into death and Hades, which will become important later in the book of Revelation when he starts casting demons and whatnot down into that place. He's got to open the door first, right? He's got the key. So, uh, and then lastly, we'll see the church of Laodicea. Jesus is described there as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation. I think that one's interesting there uh, because amen is usually at the end, and then he's the beginning of creation. Remember in chapter one, he was the first and he was the last, the alpha and the omega. Uh, that's how he was described. Uh, he was specifically described in chapter one uh, as the faithful and true witness. And so that same idea carries across these three letters these letters were written to these churches by Jesus Christ, which again, if Jesus wants to write me a letter, I'm both excited and a little bit scared. Like I want that letter no matter what it says, but I'm a little bit scared because we know that some of these letters are going to come with criticism as well. And I would imagine if, you know, if I'm just being honest with you, I would imagine he would have some criticism for our church. I think he would say, you're doing this well, but oh my goodness, whose idea was this? And then I'm probably going to have to go, mine. <laughs> but then he's going to tell us how to fix it. So I want that letter. Uh, I also want to be faithful to try to look at these letters and see how they can apply to us. I think that's important that we not overlook this idea. So as was his form, he started in chapter 3, verse 1, with this phrase, I know your deeds. And so after he addresses the church, after he says who it's from, he then says in verse 1, I know your deeds. And this is where typically up to this point, he's listed out all the great things that these churches have done. That changes in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we're going to see him first to the church of Sardis, and then last, he'll look at the church of Laodicea. In both of those cases, he's going to list their deeds, but they are not going to be good. Now, sandwiched between there is Philadelphia. They're going to have no criticism, only good deeds. So we look at how he describes them I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And then we'll jump forward to the church of Laodicea in verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's quite the image. If you can imagine somebody who's expecting hot soup and they get just slightly warm soup and they, and they just spit it out of their mouth. Or somebody who accidentally gets cold soup, that should just be spit out altogether. But, but that's kind of the image. Like what he was expecting was this church on fire, this church that was alive. And he, bleh, he's just going to spit it out of his mouth. Uh, that to me is the reason I'm afraid to get a letter to Jesus, right? Like if he sends me a letter... What is he going to say? What are the images he's going to use to describe our church? Those are the things that would be frightening to me. And again, that, that first phrase, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. It might look exciting on the outside. It might look vibrant on the outside. People might say about a church that it is alive, but Jesus knows the true spiritual nature of a church. And I can just tell you from experience I've seen it, that you can have a church that's on fire doing amazing things, but Jesus Christ isn't at the heart of it. 
it's a dead church. It's just a bunch of action. It's just a show. There's a big danger there that has to be avoided. Now, in between that, we have the message to the church of Philadelphia. What I love about the message to the church of Philadelphia, in verse 8, I know your deeds, and then he doesn't immediately list them. He says, behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So I, I love how this is sandwiched between these two. Bad. You think you're alive, but you're dead. Over here, bad. You're neither hot nor cold. I want to spit you out. I don't want to be a church that appears to be alive, but it's actually dead. I don't want to be a church that's neither hot nor cold that Jesus would spit us out. I want to be the stuffing in the middle of this bread sandwich here that he's making, these deed sandwich. I want to be the church of Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia, it says they had a little power, which I think is an interesting phrase. So it wasn't like this is like, man, that church is powerful. They have a little power. But more powerful is that they have kept my word, Jesus says, and they have not denied my name. That to me is kind of the powerful statement of this. If I don't want to be a church that's dead or even lukewarm, it's by keeping the word of God and it's by keeping in the name of Jesus Christ. That those things have to be central to who you are as a church. Those things are important. Of course, I like those things because we teach verse by verse. There's the word. Every Sunday we have this focus on Jesus Christ. Wow. I'd like to tell myself everything's hunky-dory here. And yet, I still sometimes don't know. I still hope. I still trust. So he has this thing against them. He's mentioned these deeds. uh, And so those deeds actually happen to be the things that he has against these two churches, Sardis and Laodicea. He has nothing against the Church of Philadelphia. And so their deeds, again, that he had against them is that they were dead, that they were lukewarm. Uh, uh, The third one there I actually would include, if you go farther down in the church uh, to Laodicea, in verse 17, uh, he has some pretty harsh words for them. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says this, "'Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable,' and poor, and blind, and naked. How on earth would you like that to be the description of your church? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, you're just not going to see that on a billboard somewhere. Like, come to our church, the church of the, of the, the wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It's biblical, right? Like, it's a biblical description of a church. It's just not a good description. Those are some pretty harsh words, right? That that's how Jesus sees that particular church. He has these things against you. Well, there's something that I think is powerful in this. Uh, there's this weird addition in the, the letter to the church of Sardis. It's there in verse 4. So we have this church where Jesus basically has no good deeds that he lists for that church as a whole. In the middle of this church, that there's no good deeds listed, he, he says this in verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The connection for me is this, that even if the church is struggling, 
the individual believer has a responsibility to live in faith. There's still a responsibility for the individual believer to live righteously. Now, we live in a world that's a little bit different than the world that, that this book was written to. Uh, typically, in those communities, there would literally just be one church, and that's why they call it the church at Sardis. Like, this is the church in Sardis. It was the only church there. Now, if you come to Cheyenne, there's like 90 churches in this city. So if, if we have a bad church experience, we just kind of like, well, we had a bad church experience there, we'll just go to another church. And we'll just keep doing that until we get the church that matches up to what we want the church to look like. And obviously, the way we want church to look is the perfect church, obviously, because we've got it all figured out, and those churches were the problem, right? All that. But we kind of have that mentality. But here's another thing that happens sometimes in the church. Uh, I think some of you might have experienced this. I think some of you have seen it in other people's lives. When the church struggles, I've seen a number of people abandon their own faith. Uh, sometimes the church mistreats people. Uh, sometimes the church does a poor job in leadership. Uh, sometimes the church doesn't meet the needs of people that they were supposed to. Sometimes churches just fall apart for who knows what reason. And sometimes in the midst of that, those who are attending those churches, they give up on their own faith. And they say, gosh, the church just just ruined me. I'm just done with the whole church scene and this whole Jesus thing. That was when I was younger, I did those things. I'm just done with it. I'm just, I'm just done with it all together. You don't have to be like that. The church may fail you, but Jesus Christ never will. That's the thing that I think we need to be careful to remind, her, to remind ourselves. Look, I... I would love to say that Calvary Chapel Cheyenne is going to be a perfect church and that we're going to be a perfect church right up until the day Jesus comes. But I can't say that. The history of churches tells me that that's not reality. Most churches have a phase where they kind of rise and then eventually they stagnate and then eventually they fall. Most churches don't last thousands of years. It just doesn't happen that way. There's this ebb and flow to church history. If you're trusting in this church for your salvation, if you're trusting in this church instead of Jesus Christ, or any church instead of Jesus Christ, you're going to be disappointed. It's not something we're going to do intentionally. I'm just telling you that that's the way that that works out. I don't mean to scare people or anything like that. I don't think there's anything going on that's going to shut our church down. I'm not trying to scare anybody, uh, but I have met too many people who, when they gave up on the church, they also gave up on their salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do. In fact, I would take that further. Uh, we're going to see this list of instructions here in a minute. I've got 11 things, 11 instructions uh, that were given to us, but I'm going to hone in on specifically the sixth one there, and that's going to be from the church of Philadelphia. I love this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one, uh, uh, no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come about upon the whole earth, the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it uh, anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, uh, I love this. Now, look, there's lots of instructions for these other churches that were struggling, but wrapped up in the middle of this is this idea that at the Church of Philadelphia, this is the faithful church, the church with no criticism, but even to that church, Jesus says this, hold fast to what you have. And when he says fast, he's not talking about speed. Don't hold it quickly. Hold fast. Like think of the word fastener or something would fasten onto you, like a snake would fasten onto your arm, right? Like hold fast. That's the encouragement to be in these verses. He's encouraging us. He's telling us to persevere is the other word he uses there in verse 10, to hold on, to persevere, to overcome. And that type of thinking has been the thing that has solidified my faith. Uh, I have been a person who lived on the faith roller coaster. Everything's going great, and then I have a bad day, and then all of a sudden my faith drops with everything else. And then I get to a low, and I'm like, I'm going to pick myself up by the bootstraps. I'm going to get back into my Bible. I'm going to get back into prayer. And then I can like, have this spiritual high, and everything's going great again. And then my car breaks, and all of a sudden Jesus doesn't love me anymore, and the whole world's a mess, and, and I just kind of got gone through these ups and downs in my faith. But this idea of holding fast changed that for me. It came for me at a, at a, a difficult personal time, uh, just dealing with some really difficult stuff uh, in my family. But uh, when that stuff was happening, uh, I'm in this place where I'm yelling at God about things that He didn't do. I'm angry at God for things that he didn't do. And I started to realize that all the things that were wearing me out and all the things that were holding me down, none of those things changed who God was. That God was the same yesterday and today, and he'll be the same forever. And so I just got off the roller coaster. And I just said, from now on, I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt that even if my circumstances don't make sense, even if there's difficulties in my life, none of that changes who He is and what He's done for me in salvation. And so I'm going to have my bad days. I'm going to have my good days, but I'm not going to let my bad days or my good days change my faith in my Savior who is constant, who is permanent, who is forever. I'm going to hold fast. I love this illustration. Uh, I got it from Ray Comfort. I'm sure he got it from somebody else. Uh, but he talks about your salvation as a parachute. He says, imagine you get on an airplane and somebody hands you a parachute. Now, first of all, if I get on an airplane and somebody hands me a parachute, I've already got a problem. Because <laughs> I don't know that I want to get on that plane. What are they expecting is going to happen on this trip? It's bad enough I've got a raft under my seat and the oxygen thing that's going to fall down in front of my face. Now you've handed me a parachute. That's like you say this thing's going down. You know it's going down. So I'm already freaked out, right? 
Now I look out the window and I see one of the engines smoking. That parachute just became my best friend. I am hanging on to that parachute. That is mine. You can't have it. I don't care how crazy it gets on that airplane. I don't care if people are screaming at me, if the hostesses or, or the, the, what do you call it anyway, the, peop, the stewardesses are falling down because the plane's doing this flopping all over the place. I don't care if there's fire all over the wings. You cannot have my parachute. It is mine. I'm holding fast to that thing. It's on my back. I'm ready to rip the ripcord at any second. I don't even know how a parachute works, but it's my parachute. I don't need to know the details. Because if that door opens and people start falling out of it, I got a parachute. This is my salvation. That's how I view my faith now. My salvation in Jesus Christ, I'm holding fast to that with everything that I have. Now, that's not to say that Jesus isn't still involved in my salvation, that he isn't still doing work. But from my side, from my perspective, I'm holding fast. I'm not giving up. I'm persevering. And I know that my Father in heaven who's promised me things, I think what He's promised me is when I pull that ripcord, I'm saved. That's what I believe. I'm holding fast with everything that I have. That's where my hope is. It's in my salvation. I'm not going to give up the things that I have. So yeah, there's a lot of other things on that list. Uh, You can look at that list. There's interesting things there. There's actually, uh, I think the one to Laodicea is actually a, a kind of a backhanded insult because he tells them that they're, they think they're rich when they're really poor. And then he tells them the thing that they need to do if they're so rich, why don't you buy from Jesus refined from gold? Why don't you buy from Jesus your own white garments? Why don't you buy from Jesus I salve? Like they can somehow go to the Jesus store and buy those things. But they were trusting in their own wages. They were trusting in their own wealth instead of trusting in their Savior, Jesus Christ. But anyway... The idea of this is is that we have to hold on to our faith. Now, of course, each one of these comes with a discipline. Uh, The discipline is is, uh, a little bit of a threat there, uh, is that that Jesus is going to come like a thief at an unknown hour, and that he will reprove and discipline the church. I I love this to the church of Laodicea. Uh, He says this in verse 19, "...those whom I love, I reprove and discipline." Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now think about this. He has nothing good to say about the church of Laodicea. He has nothing but criticism for them. But he says this, those whom I love, those whom I love, I will reprove and discipline. Yeah, they haven't been right. But he still loves them. That's why he's contacting them. That's why he's reproving them. That's why he's disciplining them. He still loves. He still cares. Even when we don't have our stuff right. He still loves us. And the evidence of that is he reproves us and he disciplines us. So uh, we pick it up now with this final phrase, this idea of being uh, overcomers. To him who overcomes, it says, and we see that at the end of each of these chapters. I'm just going to read now through the church of Laodicea. I don't think I've read that one yet. Verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. It sounds worse when you read it all together. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not, have, will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, behold, uh, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. My father, I'm sorry, I've lost my place here. Uh, As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So when we look at these overcoming statements in these last three verses, churches that we're looking here in the book of Revelation, there's uh, nine more statements for us. It says that to he who overcomes, he will be clothed in white garments. He will have his name in the book of life. Uh, Jesus will confess his name before God, uh, which we're told that in Matthew chapter 10. If you confess my name before people, I will confess your name before God. Uh, He says you'll be a pillar in the temple of God, which is an interesting one uh, if you look at, the, at Solomon's temples, the pillars were named, they had people's names, and so that's just kind of an interesting picture. Uh, we're told that we'll have a permanent home in the temple of God. Uh, interesting, it says uh, that written somewhere, uh, I'm going to read this because it's uh, out of the Church of Philadelphia, I will write on him to the overcomer, Jesus is going to write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my name, Jesus' name. So he's going to write on you these three names. Now look, I only write my name on things that belong to me. Right? Jesus, to he who overcomes, is going to write the name of God. He's going to write that you're a citizen of the the new Jerusalem. He's going to write that you belong to Jesus Christ. He's going to write these things on you. Uh, Later, it actually tells us it'll be uh, on our forehead, which I think is so that every time we walk by a mirror in heaven, we go, oh yeah, that's who I belong to. In case you forget, that's what I'm saying there. Anyway, in addition to those new names, we're also told that we would sit on Jesus' throne. Uh, Each one of these is important for us to understand what it is that God's doing for us. Uh, Again, just a reminder, we saw this last week in 1 John chapter 5. It described for us who the overcomers were. Uh, In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So that before we go too far, what does that mean, born of God? Well, he tells us actually in verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah is born of God. So this is John who wrote the book of Revelation, who talks about overcoming. He's described for us in one of his letters what it means to be an overcomer. It's that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, but he's born of God. So the first thing you do to overcome is to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. And then it says this back in verse 4 now, because I dropped you in the middle of a sentence there. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one, verse 5, who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so again, the thing that helps us to overcome is our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what it comes down to. These are the overcomers and these are the promises. 
Now again, many of these things, we might say to ourselves, what does this mean? They're going to be in a white garment. What does this mean, book of life? Many of these things are described for us other places in the book of Revelation. Uh, But what I would want us to remember, uh, a handful of these, I'm just going to point out real quick. First of all, this one, clothed in white garments, that will be a signal for you the rest of the book. You're going to see that phrase talking about people in, in, in white garments or in white robes throughout the rest of the book. Sometimes it's Jesus. I'm not talking about that one, although Jesus did overcome the world. It says so right here. But uh, it said that in verse 21. But typically, I believe when it's talking about people in white robes in the rest of the book of Revelation, it's a sign to us that these are the overcomers. These are the people who had faith in Jesus Christ. These are his people eternally in heaven. So you're going to see that as you track through the rest of this book. You'll see this in Revelation chapter 4. You'll see this in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter uh, 19. And uh, you'll just see kind of these people in white robes over and over and over. Uh, The way I would like to say that is when you see somebody in a white robe in the book of Revelation, that's you. So in chapter 4, When the people in white robes sitting on the thrones, which by the way, we were promised thrones at the end of this, right? That was the last promise made to us that we would sit on the throne. When you see these 24 guys, these elders sitting on the throne in white robes with crowns, and what did it talk about here? We would receive a crown. That's us. That's us before the throne of God sitting on thrones. When we see Jesus coming again and those in white robes following him, that's us, the overcomers those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's us in the future. We get to see now what we're going to be doing in the future. It's kind of a cool thing. Uh, The other thing I like to point out is the book of life. Uh, This is one that I would say you don't have to believe what I'm about to say. I just happen to believe it. But this is the way I view the book of life. You're going to see the book of life come up a handful of times uh, in the book of Revelation. It's obviously here in chapter 3. It'll show up again in chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 20, and chapter 21. Now, my belief is that from the beginning, God had desired that all would come to repentance, that all would be saved. And so at the beginning of creation, I believe that he had the book of life, and he wrote down every single person's name that would ever exist in the book of life. And then at the judgment, anybody who does not have faith in Jesus Christ will be blotted out of the book of life. I want my name in the book, right? The book of life. But here's what I believe. That judgment doesn't come until the end. Which means today could be the day that you confess faith in Jesus Christ so that your name won't be blotted out of that book. One of the things I want you to know about these things as well is they're signaling for us something. You're going to see these things happening over and over and over in this book. The things that we just read this week are going to start showing up next week. In fact, so next week we're going to be in chapter 4. So this week, as always, here's your instructions. I want you to try to have a conversation with somebody about Revelation chapter 3. You've now hopefully read through it a number of times, maybe even memorized a verse out of chapter 3. Now you've heard or stayed awake for at least a portion of a sermon in Revelation chapter 3. Take what you heard and just have a conversation. And I'm not saying that it has to be evangelistic, although that'd be great. But if you were here with your spouse, practice there. If you were here with your kids, practice there. Hey, if your kids were in, uh, I think, fifth and sixth grade for sure, but maybe even third and fourth grade this week, they got this same passage. 
You can have a conversation about these things with your kids. But having that conversation gets you involved in the Great Commission, that you would be disciples who make disciples, that you would invest in teaching other people to obey the things of God. It gets you involved in that process. But then I want you to read Revelation chapter 4 every day. It's pretty short. It's actually only 11 verses. It's actually a scene in heaven. So next week we're going to be transported to heaven, and we'll get this scene in heaven And I want you to read through it this week. If you read through it seven times this week, and then next week you come back, I'm going to preach about it. And then after the sermon, you're going to say, Sean, you missed some stuff. I saw all kinds of things you didn't see in that passage. And then I'll probably say, well, you know, I just didn't have time to preach on them all. And so, but it it happens. People see things that I didn't catch. You're going to start to make these connections. You're going to see, like, here's a quick connection in chapter four. We talked here in a couple of places, both to the Church of Philadelphia and to the Church of Laodicea, about an open door. To the Church of Philadelphia, the door was already open to them. To the Church of Laodicea, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. If anybody opens the door to him. And then in chapter 4, what is the first thing we see? After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. You're going to start to see these connections. The book of Revelation will interpret itself for you if you're willing to spend the time. And it will build your faith. And as we were told at the end of the book, there is a blessing for he who reads and heeds the things in here. All right. Amen is what I'm going to say about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm I'm just so thankful uh, that you are a great God. Lord, I look at all that's happening here. I look at the scene in chapter four of this uh, celebration service as everybody's worshiping you. I'm just, I'm just reminded of how great you are, how much it is you've done for us. Oh Lord, I would pray for those here today who are struggling in their faith, that today would be one of those days where they would be able to get a foothold, that they could hold fast a little bit longer because of today. Oh Lord, I would pray for those who have been hurt or damaged by this church or other churches. Father, that you would bring healing to them. Lord, that they wouldn't see or they wouldn't blame you for the things that were done inappropriately in your name. But instead, they would hold even even tighter to you. They would trust in you for their entire future. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would examine ourselves, that we would look at our deeds, the things that we've done in your name, We would recognize that you see those things. But we would also be open to criticism for reproof and for discipline from you because we would recognize that that's your love for us. Father, we love you and we thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close in worship.